How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 26. Woo! Woo! We're getting there. We're getting there. That's, uh, that should be our slogan, the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. <laughs> We're getting there. We're getting there. Next to directorial debut and add it to the list. <laughs> a bit of our slogan. We should have by, a t-shirt. I was going to say, by episode 100, we're going to have like an entire t-shirt catalogue. Yeah, I know. We should really get a t-shirt, I think. It wouldn't matter. It's an audio podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be directorial debut. That's oh, well, Back when we did Blue Velvet, at least it, we had video episodes. So if you had, we had merch. Uh, uh, he had merch. Had that, had that terrible idea that we thought we could sell merch. But uh, how did they? I, I, bought, I bought a shirt. That's true. We I sold two shirt. shirts. Oh, really? I was one of them? Yeah. Jaden Kern was the other one. Nice. Sure. And Mooney. Actually, three. Oh, there you go. Jaden Mooney, who um, hopefully we'll get on the podcast one day. Can we get like... You, me, Jack, Jaden, and Mooney to all wear like a shirt one day and just walk around. That'd be for, pretty for cool. For a podcast that doesn't exist anymore. Exactly. It'd be like <laughs> in memoriam. Like, <laughs> we, like that, oh, no. Much like the Spider-Man intro. Uh, but oh, we've yeah. already talked about Spider-Man. We're going to be talking about some other movies. Talk about TV shows also a lot this week, I'm pretty sure. Very TV heavy this week for both of us, I mm-hmm. think. It's interesting. You dr- you having a drink there? I was. I was drinking some orange juice. Oh, whatever. Um, <laughs> it's been like dr- like alcohol the last few weeks, and now it's orange juice. Yeah, well, I had a big night last. I had night. a big weekend. So yes, I did. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Uh, big TV week. Um, yeah. Couple of things came out. Uh, one of them came out only 10, 11 days ago, and then pretty recently, the other show uh, came mm-hmm. out earlier this year. Well, let's talk about a show we've both watched. Yes. Well, I, te- I teased it last week. I talked about having watched Stranger Things season three. Yes. And you you admitted on that show that you've only seen the first season. I did. And you've in this since the last podcast, less than a week later, you've watched all of season two and three. Yeah. So instead of opting for more films to add to the challenge, which I did watch a couple, but not really worth big um, sets of dialogue. I don't really have a lot right. to say about the movies I've watched. I watched a Bob Dylan documentary that was a documentary about Bob Dylan. <laughs> I really don't have that much to say. It was it's directed like by... That, it's like that with docos, eh? Half the time, you're just like, I don't know what to say. It's, it's, it's... Watch the doco if you like the doco. <laughs> like, things like yeah. Tickled and stuff like that, where it was like, you need to watch this because it, it yeah. hooks you. And then most docos, it's, yes, I enjoyed this because it was informative and I got an aspect of my life. Unless it's, like, terrible. <laughs> um, but yeah. Who was it directed yeah. by again? Scorsese. Oh, okay. So, big name attached to it. Um, That's interesting. But, no, just didn't do anything too, like, groundbreaking. with he, Especially because he has some great documentaries out there. I've always yeah. talked about The Last Waltz being one of my favourite documentaries of all time and just directed by him. But this one just felt like a collection of archival footage that someone got in the attempts to make a documentary back then right. but didn't get to make it until today, basically. It's like that sometimes, though, when it's yeah, like, styles of archival footage versus like what they've got themselves and all that kind of different thing. It, yeah, exactly. And I, so I don't really want to touch on that's on Netflix too. It's a Netflix exclusive, but mm. the big Netflix exclusive, obviously, being Stranger Things, came out on July fourth, season three. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> and like I said last week on the show, I didn't watch the last two seasons, but in this last week, have sat down and watched both of them. Uh, 17 episodes. Is that really 17? Yeah, because it's 9 wow. and 8. I'm glad oh. they brought it back down to 8 this season. I literally finished season 3 finale 
with you just then. Yeah, I, I walked in halfway for the last. So I rewatched that last half an hour. Yeah, which is probably good because it gives you a, a yeah a bit fresher. a bit fresh. It was a very strong ending. Uh, no spoilers for now. We'll get into it real quick. I imagine. Yes. Like, yeah. If you don't want any Stranger Things spoilers? You might want to jump ahead a little bit. I'll, I'll talk a bit about season two. Put some spoil. I'll talk about the season two spoilers because yeah. watching season two. Yeah. Um, as I said to you before the show, the first season, I know a lot of people, they really enjoy the first mm. season. Like, they think it's pretty, like, next, for some reason. Like, for me, it felt like some, I f- and this is really weird saying this, but I feel like watching the first season of 13 Reasons Why and the first season <laughs> oh, of no. Stranger Things side by side, I feel mm. like both of them gave me moments of awe and about the same level of moments of awe. Okay. I do think Stranger Things is consistently a better show yeah, by a mile, but there were moments, particularly in the first season of 13 Reasons Why, which were quite effective scenes. Um, what scenes in particular? In though? the first season? Yeah. Um, the first episode's pretty strong and how they introduce oh, yeah. the ideas. I've seen that a few times, that first episode. It kind of uh, swerves you a little bit mm. and particularly some of the later heavier scenes, um, like the, particularly like sort of the reveal of like how what happened to her that night. Right. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Clay's sort of revelation over that No, time. you're right. There's some good stuff in there. There, are, there is good stuff. There's a lot of... Uh, a lot of very poorly handled stuff as well. Yes, but the <laughs> moments that hit right in that show do hit quite well. Mm. Um, they're very few and far between, but I thought with the first season of Stranger Things, definitely a budgetary, obviously it was... Very experimental. Mm. It felt, uh, particularly in hindsight of the last two, the season we just watched. Yeah. Um, it had, it didn't really grab me that much. The big ending didn't grab me that much. Um, I wasn't, although I admit all the actors in the, from the get go were very impressive for child actors. Yeah. I still didn't like them that much. Okay. You know, it's a bit of a hot take, I think, there. For the first season? Yeah, even then. Yeah, okay. People um, love those kids. I think. Um, my, like I've said off the show that each season for me has a different MVP, mm, a character okay. that just carries the season. And in the first season, it was definitely Hopper. Yeah. That and his whole story, his backstory, is mm. like where he goes from point A to point B. I feel like it's really strong in the first season. Yeah. Um, I'd say the second season has got a lot to do with probably if I'm thinking about it off the top of my head, I really enjoy. I mean, I feel like Dustin's carried the last two seasons for me personally. Dustin's great. He's great in this third season as well. Like, he has some of the best lines. Yeah. Even Eleven in season two. Honestly, I didn't care too much in the first season. And in the second season, I cared a lot more for her. Okay. Because of her backstory stuff and the sort of stuff, the alternative stuff that they did with her. It's interesting you say it because I always find the, the sci-fi heavy stuff, like with the, when they're cut to the basement or when they're doing all the experiments, I find it to be the least interesting part of it myself. I understand a big part of that is what people love about the show. Yeah. I just kind of tune out, to be honest. I'm like, I just want to see the kids. Interesting. But, That's... um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so my, my general consensus of the second season, I really enjoy Sean Astin's role in yep. that season. I think he is, he's perfect in Up Until His Death. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I was uh, like, yeah, yeah. But I think he plays that role perfectly, and you do get shocked when he gets killed off. They Yeah. They surprise. They really do hold uh death in this show with its characters in pretty high regard. Yeah. Um however I think the show did shift for in from the first season it felt more mysterious like a mystery mm. sci-fi whereas now 
it definitely just feels like a sci-fi drama. Yeah. Because all the a lot of the mysteries kind of gone out of it. It's yeah. It's more a case of kind of self discovery. Well, that's what I wrote. I actually wrote in my notes when I started season three. One of my big positives, and I think season two is my least favorite. Okay. Um, because it holds off like one of one of the things in season two, like the big moment of um, Mike and Eleven's reunion. That's mm-hmm. like it's like the whole season for it to happen, and obviously there's like a new mystery, a new villain, a new kind of monster sort of thing. A lot has gone start of third season, like we just kind of jump in in the kids' lives. Mm-hmm. The villain or the main, like, kind of enemy of this season's essentially the same villain. Yeah. So even though there's still mystery aspects and we're still learning things, there's way less of it. And I actually really enjoyed that. Yeah. I like just being plopped into the, the story. And I think yeah. it works really well in the first season. It's the definitely the first half of uh, the first season I thought was a lot stronger than the second half in the fir- when we're talking about the first season. Yeah. I really like the whole... This kid goes missing, yet we can't explain what he's doing, but he's somehow managing to connect to Winona Ryder's storyline in particular. Mm. I I remember that sequence where she's looking at the the lights and she's decorated her whole house and the lights are the way of communicating. A lot of creative writing in that sense. Yeah, really good. And they they touch on it a little bit more in the second season too with the the tunnel and them working out where Hopper is. Yep, yep, yep. and this season, this one that just went by, doesn't have as much problem solving. It's more, it almost feels like it actually got to this level where it felt like they were problem solving at a convenience in the sense that it's something that national treasure movies do where they, <laughs> they go, oh, we have this puzzle. And then for some reason, one of the characters has the, the necessary information to complete the puzzle. Right. Whereas I feel like, so it feels not, it feels more artificial rather mm. than, Oh, this une- unexplainable things happening. Uh, yeah. I'm going to discover how to explain this, rather, or it's or it's mystical. Is it mystical or is it like reality? Yeah. I, I guess. Uh, and I think in this one, there's definitely like there's a okay. There's a big one in the early. It's like episode one um, or two, and this is in the new season, season three. It's a spoiler, but it's not any big spoiler. I, at this point, you might as well just like call off any spoilers. Yeah? Like, yeah, the way the conversation's going, I say, I mean, we're going to get into stuff anyway. Well, we don't have to touch on it too much. We can talk about, like, the spoiler side in a couple of weeks, but I just feel like there's, like, this story feels a bit more streamlined than some other seasons, I guess. I don't know. Which is funny, given how big the cast is now. Cast definitely got bigger. I think I want to touch on what you were saying as well with, um, kind of the, the the scenes where they're kind of figuring stuff out or putting... They they, they touch on that a little at the start of the season. They have the scene where they're the radio tower station thing they put mm-hmm. together for Dustin's character. That that was like a little callback. I'm like, oh, he's a scene of them physically putting this thing together and it kind of hints yeah. back at like the, the map of the tunnels and stuff. Yeah. I'm um, all the, you know, putting the lights around for the, in the house for the communication. But you're right. There's a little less of that this time. It just seems a bit more like, okay, they're just kind of figuring out as it's, they go. It definitely felt like I was talking to someone earlier about it. It feels like they're pushing more into kind of supernatural Ter- like the show supernatural territory like right, it's becoming okay. more the case of these are extraordinary characters being put in a fur like further into the deep end i mean yeah. some of the the escapades that happen in the third season they're a bit they're a bit campy and there's nothing wrong with them being campy yeah um because it's sort of the tone this show's kind of going for mm. but honestly something like this and something like that came out 15 20 years earlier like buffy has that if Josh Whedon's all of those sort of Buffy shows did come like, out that long ago, yeah. Yeah. 
like Buffy and Angel and even Firefly to extents, there's that campiness to them. Right. Um, but there's this, they're still grounded in like a real serious reality. Yeah, I think it's, the campiness in this show is pretty, pretty chill. Yeah, it's not too bad. It, it definitely it, it. That's why I think it pushes more to the supernatural side. Yeah, like that show where there are little jokes and campiness, but overall it gets really serious and. Mm. The characters are quite serious. I mean, you're right, because it does touch on... First of all, like, the, the actual threat and level of danger in across all three seasons is actually pretty... It's well done, because you feel very... It feels yeah. very dangerous. Uh, this yeah. season, probably not so much. It's more It's more a violent season, I realised. It is. way more violence in this season than the other two. But the other two seasons had better scenes of kind of emotional weight, um, especially the end of that third episode when they find Will's supposed body in a river and that little montage that plays it. That yeah. was like a really emotionally heavy scene. And then some of the stuff that happens to Will in season two was like horrifying. Yeah. I feel this season pulled it back a, a tiny bit. Even going, touching back on Bob's death, it's mm. a pretty brutal yeah, death. Absolutely. And it's one of those things that you're waiting for something to save him. And the camera holds on it. Particularly as I've literally watched this, this scene a couple days ago. So it's, it's like, been, it's been like two years for me. Yeah. Well, when he's dying, it sort of looks like he's going to get hit, but someone's going to come and save him. But, yeah. And they leave him, and then they, they, they leave the compound, and then they cut back to him being killed. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, I was like, holy shit, they're, like, sticking on this. Yeah, yeah. It. so it's like, it's yeah. not one of those sort of Gandalf falling into the pit. Yeah, yeah, The yeah. characters run away, and then we watch the characters emotionally take in what has happened. Mm. That happens. But then it would be like cutting back to Gandalf and his dead bodies on the floor, (laughs) which obviously isn't what happened in in Lord of the Rings. But it's like sort of the same sort of thing where it's like, Mm. no, they're really showing this character is dead. Well, I do. He is dead. I love that the show and like, if we don't want to go into spoilers, I won't name names, Mm. but I will say in season three, there's a couple of choices that are made, especially towards the end while I was like, kind of bold choices. Bold, in regard bold, to that, but although it's it's questionable if they're gonna stick. Well, it talks back to the there is a mid credit scene which definitely begs the question where it feels like they've pulled the trigger, but I feel like the trigger's only kind of half cocked. Right, right. Um, I mean, it would be cool if they stick to some of the uh, the things they promised at the end of that third season. Yeah, but um, I really enjoyed the ending of third season. I don't know. I, I actually think this is one of those shows, and this is why I honestly think comparing to Supernatural is not wrong because it's like uh, Supernatural do, quote-unquote, kill characters off. But right. I think Sam and Dean both collectively die like two or three times on that show each <laughs> and come back one way or another. So for this show, I mean, the show is literally built on the premise of a kid dying, but he doesn't actually die. Right. And even in the final montage sequence at the end of season three, where it's done in a news report, you really kind oh, yeah. of only find out that, you know, really only two characters of are noted as notable deaths right. over three seasons. Which I thought well, was a bit well, weird. Well, three, technically. Technically, there's three. Um, so when you think about that, it's like characters don't die. I actually thought when you said to me prior to watching this episode, yeah, I thought some of... Uh, some more characters would die. You know, I thought uh, this would, there would be quite a big death because I honestly thought this was the last season. Okay, and yeah. I believe there's one more. They're looking to do one more. Well, before before we like move on from this, uh, do you think they should have ended the show here? I remember when I and I said this on the show when I watched the trailer for this season. I remember thinking like this really feels like a final mm-hmm. season sort of thing. 
Um, I'm not. I don't. I really don't mind. I really don't care. Cause like I, I, I really enjoy the show, but I'm not like that invested in it. I'm not. The, I'm not the guy who's gonna be like, they should have ended it here because I don't really care. Yeah, there's some people like real, real fans of this show, like super, mm. super fans. No, it makes it makes perfect sense. I don't think I don't think a Netflix show has this much gravity. On like a Netflix original has right. this much. I mean, support the fact of the matter it. is, it's still a pretty good show. Oh yeah, compared to the rest of the cat. I mean, I can name a couple of shows I think are better. But in terms of, like, they've kind of nailed the aesthetic mm. in terms of the, the kids and the, the lovable cast of characters, the 80s aesthetic. It shot really well. And I wrote this, and I wanted to compliment this on something that Jesse was saying last week where he wanted to watch blind spotting on a, on a theater screen. And mm-hmm. I was I was thinking about that with Stranger Things. I was like, Stranger Things is a pretty good show <laughs> to watch on a big screen. And we don't really get that chance because they just put them on Netflix, upload them on a share drive sort I of would, thing, that's it. I would like to see if there's only going to be one more season which i think this is cool because it doesn't feel like the show's getting too greedy um because mm. four seasons isn't a lot for a show shows always have it's, yeah, four, it's a fine number four is honestly like kind of a golden number if you think of a lot of shows that run for nine or ten seasons a lot of them tend to plateau around the four or five mark yeah they tend to hit their peak and begin a plateau and then a decline um i'm thinking uh, tying back to Angel, uh, I mean, it got cancelled on season five, but it was it was going pretty strong. Uh, Buffy definitely plateaued mm. in its later seasons. It's weird, I'm talking about these shows so much, but <laughs> I used to watch them a lot, and I think they are sim are similar enough to compare. Fair I can't... enough, fair enough. Supernatural is a big one. I know Supernatural. Everyone That's like, was what, like fifteen seasons, and I know it? everyone was like checked out after like eight. Yeah. Or nine. They were like, just stop the show. But it's weird because all these shows you're talking about, it feels like a different era of TV. Well, yeah. Where it was like, you know, I'm not sure how many of these shows it applies to, but like that, that feels like a 25 episode per season show. Runs for like 15 years. How happy would you, know, you cable be if, TV. if Walking Dead had checked out after four seasons? Oh, God. You it should have checked out after two or three, to be honest. Yeah. Four was I mean, okay. Four, four, I think, holds enough. Seven uh, when, is horrifically bad. When the governor dies, that's that's the show peak point. Yeah. That was it. That was, like, where the show is, like, we literally can't go anymore. Oh, God. They, um, they need new writers immediately. And it, it's, it's, it's too far gone, that show, but I don't know. Look, I think I think we're in a different age of TV, and mm-hmm. I, think, I think shows tend to be a bit shorter, but kind of they follow through with the quality and all of that. Yeah. Um, I want to quickly comment on the, um, basically the viewership or how successful the show is going because you mentioned how you think the budget is kind of through the roof on this last season. It definitely feels like it. Yeah, I I agree. It looks it, it looks great and like the effects and everything like it's just it's a it's, big show. It's gorgeous. It honestly, it's like, it feels like, like it's we're now walking that line of it still technically feels indie enough. To be, like, considered an indie film, but it's, like, one of those high-budget indie films. Yeah. Um, sort of like a uh, like a, a John Wick, you know, something that has, like, yeah, 40 exactly. million behind it, but it's still, quote-unquote, indie. That's kind of, like, the perfect budget, in my mind. Yeah. That kind of number. But um, I want to talk about it, because Netflix are notoriously bad for putting out, kind of, um, their viewership or the numbers, or so, unless it's, mm-hmm. like, really, really impressive. Uh, in this case, apparently, across... I'm reading an article from uh, Variety... Of all things. Okay. Uh, the third season of Stranger Things has posted record viewership figures, according to Nielsen measurements. Ac- uh, according, no, across the holiday weekend from July 4th to July 7th, the show had an average minute audience of 12.8 million viewers and reached a unique uh, number of visitors in the US at 
million viewers. Raking it in. So, raking it in. I think this is my favourite season, definitely. I mean, the first is still my favourite, but this one's way better than the second one. I think... I, I, I don't mind the second season. I think the second season does a little bit too much of the a circle, but then the second is also a really good setup for the third. This season definitely feels like we're now at this point where, like I said, the cast feels like everyone has, is... They're just a super group now, yeah. really. They're sort of, And they keep adding to their Avengers team. But We're like, in the end game now. Basic, honestly, their, their group is so. This their group is kind of getting too OP. Like, <laughs> no, think about it. I mean, like that. Yeah. The fact that they pull off what they pull off in this season, it just feels a little bit like. I'm looking forward to the premise of the following season, given the events that happened at the end of this one. Because some pe- some people are a bit hindered now, which helps. I feel it, like Eleven was, like stripped away of her power a lot in this season. Like, the threats were able to really fight back against her in this season. Yeah. Last two seasons, she she felt OP, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like, like it, but it also feels like everyone around is sort of, I mean... Elevated. Uh, without going into too much detail, Dustin it, is not a part of the main group. This pretty much this entire season. Yeah, he kind of gets a separate story with Steve, which felt a little fan service to but it worked. It worked. It was fine. I enjoy it. I think it's, it's definitely... That portion in all of those episodes I enjoyed the most because it yeah. just felt... That's what it felt like. It felt too super groupy. Okay. Where it was like these guys who have literally no powers somehow <laughs> walk out of this situation. And then they add, like, what is it? Like, Lucas's little sister. Uh, and That was a weird addition. I'm, I'm not a big fan of her, to be honest. Because she's, like, too smart for her own good. Or like... I know, she just kind of bugged me. But I, guess, I guess not. I think a lot of people love her. I thought she was up. fine. Like, she doesn't feel out of place. She was involved in the funniest scene in the show with her and Dustin and the fan. Yes. That was a great back and forth, I will admit. That was funny. It was really good. Honestly, I like, the, the big point I want to make in this, though, is... They're all kind of dicks to each other for no reason. Like, the petty drama that happens at the start, which I know is to sort of, like, buy into, well, they still are, like, immature teenagers. But right. Jesus Christ, give... give What's the kid's name that went who disappeared for the last two seasons? Oh, Will. Give Will a break. Let's play some D&D, man. <laughs> like, yeah, the- I'm glad Will, like, didn't get the hangover treatment this time, where he's, like, the character that gets shit on the entire series. Like... Ex- like, Doug in every hangover movie, just, like... Po- it's missing <laughs> i know but it's it, like seriously it's like first off he goes missing for an entire season people think he's dead for most of that season in the second season he has a bloody demon in him so it's like, <laughs> like he gets right exorcist there. in the last episode so he basically feels like shit. he gets tortured for a good part of that season too yeah. and in this one he's like bro can we just play some D and like they're all 13 and they're like no we get girls it's like only one of you is kissing your girlfriend Apparently, so it's like, you know, I, I actually have a theory about that. I think because I realized that um, what's his name and um Max, I don't think they're kissing Ma- all. In Max this. and Lucas, yeah, Lucas, yeah, Max and Lucas. I don't think they're kissing this season. I think it's something to do with the fact that the the directors forced them to kiss on set in season two. Really, that was, that was a whole thing where they kind of got forced to do it without any like warning on the the ballroom episode. Right. And I feel like that might be some that might have played badly and had something to do with them not kissing in this new season. It's tricky. I mean they're all seven they're all seventeen now. Okay. So But they would have been like fourteen or fifteen when they recorded that episode. Yeah, they would have been way younger back then. 
But yeah. I feel like now, because most of the cast is either, they're all either 17 or 18 now, I'm pretty sure. Right. So, or definitely, so I we feel should, like. We should have a time jump in season four. What, so then? We should jump like another three or four years, I think. That'd be cool. Yeah, I'd say that'd be cool um, because they're going to run it. They're running out because their body clocks are all going to start. Yeah, going they're already look pretty like much older in this one. Yeah, it's they they can't keep it going for this. Yeah. So they probably will need to be a time jump. It's kind of lucky how Harry Potter got away with it for eight films, ten years. And it's actually pretty like nice progression. Yeah, I mean... How they age? Everyone, the, not just the three The luck comes also in the fact that all three of them just, when they hit puberty, they just didn't grow beards and stuff like that, yeah. you know? They, well, they I mean, shave them off really well. <laughs> yeah. I don't think Daniel Daniel Radcliffe can really grow one. Or Rupert Grint. Oh, Daniel Radcliffe's got a great beard. Does he? Yeah, look it up. I have to. I'm not sure about Rupert Grint. What about Emma Watson's beard? Oh, yeah. Big one. Big beard. <laughs> Huge. What else did you watch, Jake? Um, so we were sticking on the TV train. Mm. So I watched something I mentioned. Choo-choo. Choo-choo-choo. Motherfuckers. <laughs> um, I watched Chernobyl. Ch- Chernobyl. No, they say Chernobyl on the show. That's how no, they pronounce it. No, I was just making a chew train joke. Ah, oh, you suck. Well, so, um, someone was giving me crap saying like, uh, it's Chernobyl. I'm like, they say Chernobyl. Shut up. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, um, excellent show. So this was yeah. it's, it caught my attention because I figured like got the highest IMDb. Uh, oh, sorry, not IMDb. Is it IMDb? I figured it. No, it's... <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes? Yes. No, it is definitely IMDb, like the 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 audience oh, yes. user score. Got like the highest one, like it outbeat Breaking Bad, which is now at number two. So I was like, this is very intriguing. I'm going to watch yeah, it. And it was, I'm hurting a little. No, it's it's a brilliant show. So yeah. the whole, I mean, it's about obviously the Chernobyl kind of accident that happened in, I think it was 86. Okay. That happened in, um I want to say Moscow, but um it was definitely like a Russian thing. And it's in the Ukraine, isn't it? That yeah, that sounds about right. I I'm blanking. I, I remember writing down and I lost. I don't know, but um, so that was kind of this huge, massive like nuclear leak, and the area is still forbidden. You still are not allowed to go back there. So yeah. imagine like thousands of people being evacuated their homes, and never allowed back. Yeah. So um, this show kind of covers a lot of that. It got it kind of hits all the right levels. So it actually starts off. So we follow uh this dude who was kind of one of the main people in kind of outing the issues and why mm-hmm. this accident happened because at, at first it was initially like oh how was it possible that you know this reactor exploded and this whole thing happened and we basically found that there was like a massive fail safe with the emergency stop button and because of the way it operates it actually is more likely to set off another chain of reactions where things get even hotter hence the explosion happens so it was like a whole thing that was kind of kept under the rug and we follow um, Legasov, I believe that's how he's pronounced, who mm-hmm. was one of the main guys who kind of outed that in a public hearing. Um, and the show starts off two years after the Chernobyl kind of explosion. Yep. He kills himself. He leaves a tape. He leaves his tapes of what's happened, and he kills himself. So we know ahead of time, okay, this person, this is how his story ends, mm-hmm. what happens between that. So we kind of follow mostly him and some other characters. Some are based on real-life people. Others are kind of, uh combinations of say for example there's this one character i forget her name but she's meant to be sort of the representation of like hundreds of different scientists the narrative tool yeah exactly and it's it's similar to um what am i thinking of there's a argo i'm thinking of argo where brian cranston's character is essentially just the amalgamation of like hundreds of other agents Mm. from different places but like we need to simplify this 
Brian Cranston would just be that character. Yeah. So they kind of do the same thing here in Chernobyl with a couple of different characters. Um, so you kind of you you really come to you know, get to know them, and it's a very technical, very straightforward, dire show. Mm-hmm. Like I had bad taste in my mouth just just watching the show. Really? Yeah, because of the way it's shot, and um, it's it's hard to show that kind of thing. But then they do these like montage shots of like th- these people at the bridge watching the explosion from afar. And they're like, oh, we're safe. We're like, you know, kilometers away. Mm-hmm. And then they have these slow-mo shots of like the wind blowing in the hair. And you're like, you're fucked. <laughs> and then at the, at the end, it has like the, all the text of like what happened. And everyone on that bridge died from radiation. So it's fucking dire. It's so good. And, um, <laughs> I should get you to watch those, it. Those two sentences. It's fucking dire. It's so good. <laughs> well, that's like, that's what I was hoping from the show. It's like, I want to see the gruesome shit. Yeah, I want the, and it does. There's certain characters where the like the radiation just keeps destroying their body so over the course of a couple. How of did episodes. you watch the show? So I had to get some sort of like subscription thing. I can't even remember to be honest. I did do it honestly. Yes, and I'll help you get to watch it. But um, so I ended up watching it online. It's been that. a pain in the butt. Oh really? For uh, people in Australia to try and get a hold. Oh, of okay. Um, I know a lot of people, a lot of friends who've seen it. They probably so, saw it dishonestly. Oh no! Unfortunately, um, yeah, it's been a bit of a bit of a struggle, I think, because it's not on. Is it Stan? It's supposed to be on a HBO. It's a, it's a HBO show. So only place you can really get it is, and not a lot of people in Australia do have HBO Go. Um, okay, so. that might have been what I did. I honestly can't remember. It was like I'm trying to remember if I watched it before the last show we did or after. It feels like a million years ago since our last show. <laughs> it honestly feels like so long ago that I've kind of blanked out and stuff. Fair, but um, yeah, no, I, I'll kind of remember how. Anyway, I'll get I'm, it to you because you got to watch it. Yeah, yeah, and if not, I'd, I'd probably wait for a DVD. Oh, this release. would totally come out on DVD, and then that might be a cool thing to get. Yeah, well, it's, it's a mini series, so it's like a little thing. I still haven't finished the second season of Westworld, and I'm just slowly chipping because oh, I got okay. to the finale when I first went when it came out. Got to the finale, didn't watch it. I have a habit yeah. of watching an entire show and then. Ignoring, I still haven't watched. Uh, I I hadn't watched the finale. It took ages to get to the Game of Thrones one. Like I, yeah, yeah. I had it all spoiled for me. Oh really? I was watching the cast reveal before I even watched the episode. Well, that's just that's on you, mate. No, it doesn't bother <laughs> me. Honestly, I was so checked out of Game of Thrones. It was like, yeah, I, I mean, I still haven't seen. Game it's weird of Thrones. to think that that show's done though. It's done. Yeah, it's been done for like two months now or three months. So. Yeah, it's crazy. I'll, I'll get onto it eventually. Mm. I know I was meant to before. A couple of other things I want to point out as well. So the whole... I was curious because it's like a mini-series. Like, okay, I, I'm interested because like shows like True Detective have the same writer across like all the episodes sort of thing. Zeke's dancing right now. He's so like, good. I, could, I, I literally was quoting it today to my oh, brother. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I did that... I uh, quoted that scene from uh, when uh, Russ confronts him in, in the, the... locker room? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> God, ah, oh, so good. Um, so I might, I'll, I'll just watch that again. <laughs> I'm always curious about because obviously some shows Breaking Bad has a different writer every episode. Yeah, they have a room of like eight writers, or whatever they kind of. And well, same with the time back to Stranger Things. It's all done by the Duffer Brothers, right? That's the. A... Uh, they do like three or four episodes per season. They tend to do the start and the end. Yeah, so like the first two and the last one, or like the last two and the first episode, like that kind of thing. Um, it was interesting because I actually do look up the cinematographers for Stranger Things and I. I forget the names, but the guy who did the majority of season one and two barely touched the third season. Interesting. Which was very interesting. It definitely looks 
like untouched. I would so say the third season is probably my favorite shooting wise too. Okay. I think it does some really cool things with color in this mm. season. Like their neon lights and stuff. Really embraces the eighties this season. I feel like the other ones they they do really well, but this one really dials it. You got like New Coke, Back to the Future, Terminators oh. in there. Yes. They have a carbon copy Terminator in there. Yeah, that is such a deliberate choice. Yeah. That is one it's such a clever choice. It's like Arnold's too. brother. <laughs> it looks like an impersonator. Maybe yeah. they found an impersonator. They went to like a children's birthday party or the well, Terminator like, impersonator. I want you. <laughs> Can you say um, I'll be back? I'll be back. Yes. You've got the role. Um so anyway, it's this uh, miniseries of Chernobyl was actually directed and written by the same people across the board. So, uh, a guy named Johan Rennick, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, directed all five episodes. He's typically a music video uh, commercial type guy, but he also did three episodes of Breaking Bad, which I thought was interesting. Which th- Do you know which three? Uh, I, I think one of them was the um, IFT, which is the episode where Skylar says, I fucked Ted at the end. Um, and then, I'm trying to remember the other two. I think it was like a season two, of season three kind of, yeah. they were all kind of random sort of episodes. The, the, the so dry I- season. No, I mean they were obviously really good, but it was like it was like those episodes where it's like, oh, they were kind of uneventful ones. Mm. It wasn't like you know, Crawl Space or Ozymandias or something like. Yeah. It wasn't like one of the bigger ones. Uh, but he did do his homework on that, and it was written. Uh, all five episodes were written by Craig uh, Mazin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Now he's got an even more interesting uh, history if you mm-hmm. look it up. So he is the writer for Scary Movie three and four, and the co-writer for The Hangovers part two and three. Oh, Judd Apatow, yeah. right? That's a, the guy who does those. Um, Wait, wow. no, isn't that Todd um, Todd Phillips? Hangover. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. It's yeah. Todd Phillips. Well, I think Todd Phillips was the other co-writer for part three, and then I think they had like three or four writers in part two. But That's the worst one. <laughs> <Easily> <laughs> but I thought it was one. an interesting little history, and then he goes on to write and create the show. So, I guess it comes back to research, dedication, and, oh, and material, yeah. isn't it? It's, sometimes I think films can ha- have a good starting point just based off their material. I mean, mm. we, we, we can talk about, you know, Chazelle's First Man and even just having uh, the grounds yeah. of tackling a Neil Armstrong story. If you read a Neil Armstrong, you know, bibliography or a couple of bibliographies on him, then you've pretty much got a lot of the tool, the base information to make a good film. Yeah. Because you're understanding the inside. You've already got the inside of his brain. you just got to kind of put it on paper the right way, which yeah. these guys are professionals, so it probably isn't much easier for them to take something like the Chernobyl or the Chernobyl incident and yeah. uh, just convert it into a show that well, it's works. Ex- it's exactly right, because like, it's literally it's a case of this dude, Craig, being like, how did this happen again? Looking into it, he's like, crap, that's a show right there. Yeah. And and, and then just, it? like, for example, taking characters that were hundreds of people and making them one coalition character. Yeah. That it helps just turn them into a narrative tool. Each character is a narrative. What story yeah. are we trying to tell? Because shows like this work really well when they feel like they're educating the viewer, but at the same time they're telling you a story. Oh, absolutely. And if they find yeah. that perfect balance between the two, then they're going to come off great. I mean, this is the kind of show that you you look this up. Mm. You start looking up articles, you start looking up everything when you, once you finish the show because it's so fascinating. Well, the, the, the best part of a show like this, though, is is when they they say things like, like based on a true story and mm. they manage to make you buy into the narrative so much that you search the stuff up and then find out most of it isn't real 
what they've done. They've actually right, okay. just sort of duped you because they've told such a good story and made you feel so smart by watching it that what they've actually done is they've fabricated. Like, and that's where the whole debate comes in. This is a true story based on a true story. Where does it all? Yeah, I mean, I mean, sit? the fact of the matter is, when it comes to you know true stories, mm. you're right because it's the interpretation of a writer, it's the interpretation of a director, and the production design artists mm. and stuff. Like all of these people and actors, especially doing these interpretations of. I mean, this goes back to Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I was so shunned is because. Just so much of the, the minute details in that film are just so inaccurate. Yeah, and then in, in contrary to that, on a film that we talked about very early on, American Animals. Yeah. Where it, it taps... That very much plays with that idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, and plays with it really well. Mm. Like, it took a documentary background filmmaker to make a theatrical piece yeah. and then sort of play on that whole... This isn't based on a true story. This is a true story because we've got the people actually telling you the story from yeah, their exactly. point of view. And then the the narrative literally, you know, fabricates around it. So And even plays with the idea that they're telling their truths, which might not even be true. True. Which is <laughs> so good. True. Um, no, that's an absolutely perfect example. And you're right, based on a truth, all that kind of stuff. I think this was pretty spot on accurate. It's stuff like Zodiac, where it was like, I feel like that film was so long and... Took its time, but it was very historically accurate. So that's why I love Zodiac too. I think Zodiac does enough to. It's definitely it's a hard watch. It's a hard sit down for one, one three hour period watch. But if you broke Zodiac up into three like a three part series, it probably worked really well. To be honest. Yeah. Well, I I was thinking about while watching. I was like, this series like a five part miniseries, and it's like perfectly paced by the way. Like it's just the perfect kind of speed that it goes at. Um, I was took, thinking about Zodiac. If you took Zodiac and you just drew it down the middle and you were like, this is going to be over two nights, two-part special, you'd probably still have a lot of fun with it and it would yeah. still probably be coherent enough that you you wouldn't miss much from this. You know how they do yeah, those yeah. telemovie things where they're two parts? Exactly. So Leaving Neverland. Yeah. I mean, In Excess did one. Never yeah. Tear Us Apart, the biopic. So, yeah. I mean, do you want to break? Uh, got anything else to add? Um, yeah, a little bit. I haven't watched too much else. Um, watch Chernobyl. It's bloody amazing. There's some amazing standout scenes, um, with like the, the ending of episode two and the start of episode four in particular, I have just mm-hmm. amazing moments, uh, about historical accuracy and just kind of the fear and dread about the show. Um, another thing, so I caught another revelation screening last Thursday, which, uh, is a collection of shorts. Collection? What were these shorts? So I actually did, I wrote down the list of shorts. I played eight shorts, three docos, five uh, drama pieces. So that's a bit stronger than last time, right? Didn't you say there was a lot of doco? Oh, you were talking about well, well me and Jesse in general were talking about a lot of docos. And okay. It it started with the docos, three short docos, um, which I can get into now. I've got a list. Here we go. So we got uh, Perseus Pantry. I probably said that wrong. I apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about someone who's kind of uh, basically an immigrant who was able to start this small little um, stand business. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a nice, inspiring story. The Australian dream. <laughs> the Australian dream. Well, exactly. Uh, you got the throwback, which is actually very similar to the ex-rental docker that I'm doing. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, What's that about? Oh, it's about a video store mm-hmm. and uh, kind of the trials and tribulations of running that store and kind of the community that's built. It's a little different from the one me and my friend Keisha making, thank God. Cause I hope no one in the, the theatre like said any sort of audible, <laughs> loud... <laughs> To make it awkward for you, because probably a little bit sitting are... sitting in the same row as who I believe were the filmmakers of that particular film, and, and then, then and then one of our mates being like, 
They stole your idea. <laughs> Imagine that was very comfortable in the oh, that was great. foyer. I felt after. great after that. <laughs> um, but that was a really great time. Amazing response from the audience. And I should say, they used the, the Cinema One, the big-ass theatre mm. that I watched The Room in. So, like, a lot of seat. Like, were two... there spoons ready to throw at the screen? No, but I was wondering what the spoons were like from the very back row. <laughs> I, when I watched The Room, I was in the very front row, which means you get all the spoons for free because mm. they all just land in your, your your doorstep, basically. Imagine what it's like at the back. But... Were you worried you were going to get hit in the back of the head with spoons? I mean, they're pretty light spoons. Like, they're not going to hurt you. It's pretty great. we got to <laughs> do it one day. I, I think we should. Yeah, Kick, definitely. Uh, Greg, is it Cessero? Who knows? <laughs> it's Greg Sestra, I believe. Um, you bought a script for $20. I bought a script from him for $20 and had him sign it. It was so great. Um, but anyway, and then another doco they played was One Girl's Fire, which was about... I forget her name. You might be able to help me with this because it's about the female Freo Dockers team. Okay. And one of the recruits that had um, joined... I forget her name. Couldn't, but, um, couldn't help you with that. Don't watch. Couldn't help me? Okay. But um, it was about one of the girls who ended up on that team... But it was a documentary that mostly focused on before that and her training for that and kind of her, her small family life and stuff. That was a really interesting, well-done one. Sounds um, very uh, niche. Um, it's something like that. Mm. Uh, a document, like documentaries like that, I'm sort of... They all sound very Australia-based, which is they kind are. of... They were funded by WA institutions for Revelation, by the sounds of it. Okay. So, yeah, yeah that, that intrigues me more because, yeah, because there's a lot of... That feels very much like if you were an American watching these. Mm. I'm not sure you'd understand the Freo Docker one simply because yeah. you have I to mean, then understand what AFL is. Well, it translates through a sporting message. So I think it would be mm. well enough, but it's very Australian, very much. We're making this for a WA audience. Yeah, I guess it comes. Yeah. When I think of a documentary like that, I just think that even documentaries I've watched about sports that I don't know a lot about, like baseball yeah um they do enough to explain baseball so you get yeah yeah, it comes back to docos are explaining what they're trying to tell you and then like they explain the rules of the universe and then tell you what you want to learn a part of this yeah exactly well as long as you have enough information within the otherwise you're gonna miss the point of their journey to to an extent because you don't understand how hard something is and i i like I know it's a short documentary, so it's mm. got much less time to deal with that. Yeah, about 10 minutes each, I'd say, all the way. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, something that even with our own documentaries, we try and, you try and get them to under, you, 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 it's harder to tackle something niche because only so many people can understand yeah. every ins and out of it. But I guess it's like the success of a doctor that's able to do that is take a niche idea and make it accessible yeah. to bigger audiences. And I think mm. they did a great job, especially with those three docos. Um, they kind of had a mini break in between and they introduced the other five, um, uh, you know, anywhere between nine and 15-minute shorts, more drama-based. Mm. Um, so I think I think the strongest so one of the So not all night... short films in a festival have to be 10 minutes in length? Is that what you're saying? Mm, that's what I'm saying, Zeke. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Just wanted to note that. Um, I think it opened up with Featherweight, which I think was actually the strongest one. Yes. Of the series. It was about this um girl, I think she was thirteen, who she's kind of been reunited like with her. Name. Hmm? I like the title. Oh, Featherweight. Yeah. It's, it's a good it's a good way because I think her dad was a boxer and she's kind of been reintroduced with this estranged father and it there's a lot of shots of her looking at the trophies. And the father's now this um kind of bodyguard figure who's not home a lot. Um so she's kind of trying to impress him almost. 
And she ends up kind of stumbling upon this underground little boxing thing. Yeah. And she gets herself kind of embarrassed because they are like, you're way too young. You can't do this. Mm -hmm. So it's that kind of thing of her trying to fight her way up the ladder. She ends up getting into a fist fight with someone in a school. And her her and her father kind of have to bond over that because she hates him for almost making her like that yeah. in a sense. But that's still the way they bond. So that was a really, really good short film. That's pretty big. How, how long did that one go for? Ah, uh, 11 maybe. Actually, I might have very quick access to this because there was a Facebook page for the events and it had all the details and stuff. So what was the follow-up one? Um, so follow-up, actually, interesting enough, next one was Single Ladies, which I talked about a okay. few weeks ago so on we the show. Don't have to delve into that one too much. Yeah. But... It was weird because they played only one episode, mm-hmm. but they didn't play the first one. They played like one of the random episodes in the middle. So I think a lot of I think the audience was pretty confused what was happening because they were like, let's play episode three out of the six part and and not clarify it. That seems weird. It was it was weird. So I think I think I think there was a bit of stumbling around this part. Um, the next one, and we know a lot of people worked on this one, Jedi the Broom Brawler, which what's that about, Jake? So that's about Jedi the Broom Brawler, hmm. and basically he's I think he's kind of tricked into being arrested, and then he has to fight his way through this debt or not debt sorry but like kind of there's there's a bid mate that he has to win so a lot of uh, as a lot of our viewers know jake and i study at murdoch university going into our last semester in our degrees uh so our big films coming up but this film has been a huge talking point for probably the last year of our degree yeah about a year um a year yeah a year and a bit ago we did a unit that we had to in a fake production unit we had to be the producer for this film oh that's um and that's the first time we ever heard about this script we actually got to see the script very early on um yeah i think it was literally the first or second draft of it we weren't allowed to share it or anything oh that that was a Um, fun then that jack left on his like car dashboard like the day after that And, like facing the well, window, and it's it was really oh, interesting was to funny. we were given the budget of the film at the time, what the budget was, and they went produce this film, quote unquote, and so we all did our respective production packages, and um, all got pretty lambasted for our performances on a overall level because apparently we didn't know how to produce, <laughs> um, which it's fair enough, it's all learning, but. Um, yeah, it's, uh, we've heard a lot about this film and a lot of the ins and outs and it's an, it's been an interesting experience for our point of view as students to be surrounded by a lot of, uh, probably the the more negative elements of an industry that don't get talked about as much as people like to tuck it away. Uh, I feel like they get talked about a lot. I feel like, (laughs) I feel like we try and ourselves, we try and present ourselves as transparent as possible where very much like if we have a problem with each other we're pretty open to expressing it to each other's faces and seeing professional productions have this much uh sort of talk behind them mm. was definitely you know a positive outlet for aspiring filmmakers to learn off but i mean that's just my personal opinion yeah i uh, mean yeah it was it was definitely a journey in that sense um because obviously yeah, again we know a lot of the people both in the kind of the nitty-gritty roles of the you know, the gaffers and the first ADs and stuff versus the people with the head roles, like the producer and the director and stuff, yeah. who we all equally kind of know. I mean, there was a good collection of four or five students that we we know that were assistants on set yeah. and 
were just there to basically that's the trade-off of our industry you know these guys they're ahead of the game they'll give you a, a credit on your cv basically for being a general assistant for four days and basically all you are is a glorified intern you kind of just grab all the shit and move all the move all of the stuff and get the coffees get the actors get them on set get them on time and oh, i mean that's the gig that's the role that's the that's the, the pyramid though you gotta climb it yeah, yeah exactly but it's funny having that end of the spectrum and having those people talk about their experience on it and then yeah having the people at the the head ponchos you know tell you about their stuff and a couple of the people that worked on it that you and i know have taken us on sort of sidebars and really gone into the the behind the scenes stuff which is interesting to have that sort of perspective, perspective yeah i mean that's the right word for it i mean you ended it because you haven't seen it yeah have you no but no. what's your honest well i've seen consensus? it twice now i saw it earlier and i'm pretty sure this is the same cut that they played on the big screen and i you know i said this to glenn and i said this to a few people as well that i think it's just a shame because the edit really kind of fiddles with a lot of scenes mm-hmm. that would otherwise work really really well mm. I think I think a lot of the pieces are there, but the, there's a lot of times where they would they would cut scenes up. And we've read you know early drafts of the script, yeah. And those scenes are stronger in that script than they are on screen because they felt the need to kind of intercut it with other scenes to I, I guess keep the pace going, but it fought against the pace because I feel like it lost a lot of the tension it could have built. Yeah, in those scenes. I and think, it's a shame. I think it sounds like there was a lot of missteps with this this production which is it'll happen on productions every now and again um and setbacks and compromises and it's funny that a year ago when we got given it even in just a a a made-up scenario to produce it a lot of us students all arrived to the consensus that the casting was too large for a short film and stuff like that little things that were clear red flags that needed to be addressed and did they pose problems in the final uh the final cut having that i mean that kind of stuff's like producing stuff so that's kind of like the issues they would have to make it but if it like makes it on screen then it's made it on screen sort of thing Mm -hmm. but i mean like like i said i think the editing's the only real issue here Mm -hmm. um i just i think the pieces were there otherwise but it's a snowball effect you know the editing's only as good as the stuff that's shot, the stuff that's only good as is the stuff shot is the stuff shot, and the story is only as good as what they agree on what the script should be and how many characters should be in it before proceeding further. And it's all those kind of compromise, like it all leads to yeah. just a knock-on effect that you know the editor's only got so much to save or so much to do, and the editor doesn't do the stuff without the director giving him a thumbs up. The editor can't change the way a film's completely structured without the director going, this is our approach to this. No, well, it's absolutely correct. I mean, it, the editor is not like the pirate that's hijacking the show, you know. The pirate. That, that editor, like, as much as people blame it, like, has been a pretty consensus that the edit is the biggest problem. It's like, well, no, isn't that just a... Technically, that is a failure of being a director because that's our job to make sure that stuff doesn't go wrong. The editor does the, the heavy lifting on the edit, but we're the one driving the ship. Yeah, you know. but when I say, when I say say, say for example, I criticize something to do with the edit. I'm not necessarily blaming the editor. I'm blaming mm-hmm. whoever is involved in the the process of editing. Yes. So what you're saying still applies in that. I think. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, 
Look, I think that, along with the fact that single ladies didn't really explain what it was before it's showing, mm-hmm. kind of had the event kind of curveball in that regard. Mm-hmm. I think it brought it back as the following two films after that were Doug the Human, which was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I had a huge like headache towards the end of the screen. I literally got home and passed out. So I don't know what. I just had some migraine. I don't know what was going on. But um, despite that, I could still recognize that Doug the Human was very funny. And the final mm-hmm. film they ended was I'm Not Hurting You. Uh, which was a much more serious, kind of depressing, but uh, you know, a bit very interesting. A somber note to finish on. Yeah. Well, to to quickly recap, Doug the humans about this guy kind of washes up on a beach, and it turns out there's this mannequin who's essentially um, keeping this person as a pet. So it's kind of this comedic take on that. Mm-hmm. And then I'm not hurting you is essentially about this girl who, um, pretty much forces her younger brother, who's like kind of going through rehab to be locked in his room for a week because of his drug addiction. And it's kind of this serious, desperate attempt sort of thing. That was a really interesting kind of short film. And that was, um, I think they kind of said it last because it is like the 15-minute kind of closer. Mm. Uh, to answer your earlier question, um, Featherweight is 13 minutes. Okay. Felt a little shorter, so I'll give it credit for that. That's probably good thing. Um, but overall, it was an interesting revelation screening, especially because it was, it was such a, it was packed. Mm-hmm. It was packed. Like I had I I bumped into mates who went that night and couldn't couldn't even get a seat because it was packed. So Fair interesting, enough. very interesting. No, that's cool. pretty cool. Well, unless you've seen any other films, no, I'm pretty much ready to. Cool. Has a has it going in our careers? We got any career updates? Not really. Not nothing much from last week. I can attest to. Yeah. Just more DVD production on the sideline. Keeping it, more keeping in, it rolling. Keeping it rolling. More info as it comes. Yeah, all right. Well, then we can probably break into our film of the week. Beautiful. Well, Zeke, your suggestion. What are we watching this week? We are watching John Carney's Once. My father used to play in the orchestra back at home. You don't want to go for a walk or something, huh? A vacuum repairman moonlights as a street musician and hopes for his big break. One day, a Czech immigrant who earns a living selling flowers approaches him with the news that she is also an aspiring singer-songwriter. The pair decide to collaborate and the songs they compose reflect the story of their blossoming love. I like how you did the me thing where you're like, hmm, before you start your... (laughs) That's totally a me thing. We were doing the upside down. Whoa. Zeke. Yes. How often do you find the right person? I don't know, Jake. How often do you find the right person? Once! Ah, yes. This is a movie we just watched. I'm holding a Blu-ray right now that Zeke lent me. Yes, yes. This is a, uh, So, best part is, Jesse, be very proud of us. We bought this honestly, of course. Um, you can get this once Blu-ray in JB Hi-Fi. For a lovely 1995. Are you have some promotion. This what is yeah. going on? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by JB Hopper. <laughs> uh, no, it's not. Give us money. Um, but Jake, as you know, I'm a huge John Carney fan. Yep. So you I've are heard. also a pretty good John Carney. Well, fan. Well, I've seen the, uh, the I guess the trilogy now. I'd say this is the trilogy. If you call it once 
uh, Begin Again at Sing Street as like a trilogy. I'd say it's a love, it's a music love trilogy. Absolutely. I feel like it, it plays in. This is, um, I think we found out last week, he, it's his third or fourth film. I think it's his third film because um, he did one in 2009 and then made the other two. Yes. Begin Again at Sing Street. So yeah, it was an interim film, but excluding that, then these films would be back to back. Yeah. But thematically, they're very back to back. Yeah, they definitely feel like they're in that thematic sort of universe, which we've you know we'll we'll talk about probably touch on a couple of these sort of universe films yeah. where they feel like they're a director is going for the similar thematic themes. Um, and I thought I wanted to tackle this one because uh, this film was the third of those three for both of us. So we yeah, both we watched... kind of watched it in reverse. Yeah, so I watched this one. Out of Begin Again, uh, Sing Street, and then this one, I actually watched this third. You also watched this third. I think mm. you watched Be- Sing Street, Begin Again. Yeah, That's... I actually wrote it down because luckily me doing my 365 challenge last year, I can actually go back and see when I watched certain things. So I remember I watched Sing Street late October on um, Netflix, mm-hmm. and then I watched Begin Again early November. You lent me a DVD of it. Yes. And I watched it at home. And um, I, lo- I love both the films. I think I love Begin Again a little more mm-hmm. just because I think, I think the actual story and the characters and what they're doing is a little more uh, resonant with me. Like I love Sing street because it's got that kind of the vibe that goes with like the kid and the, um, oh, what are they? Oh, they're not, they're Irish. Are they Irish? In beginning in, in, um, Sing Sing street. Street. yes, that's Irish. Yeah. Like I kind of, I don't know. I mean, this film is very Irish yes. as well, but, um, I kind of like that vibe with the kid and then the very, you know, ah, oh, chasing the girl. So I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. But Begin Again just spoke to me a bit better. I mean, I love Mark Ruffalo and everything, but I feel this movie is a very interesting mix between the two of those, actually. Yeah, it's really interesting that it does actually touch on... I find this film really interesting and and this sort of... Because it is marketed even just by us saying the brief overview synopsis and yeah. even you making the, the tagline joke, uh, which is actually the tagline on the DVD I made that cover. joke because um, I got my mum to watch it last night. So she actually watched it before I did. Yeah. And um, the first thing she said was, why is it called Once? And I and I remembered, I was like, oh, the tagline, the DVD. Yeah. <laughs> so I just said that. But she's like, oh, okay. The big thing that's always been an encompassing factor of all three, and I think especially... Um, it Sing Street's the only one that defiantly it's boy chases girl and they do kind of yep. fall in love with each other, but you know, spoiling Sing Street when they run away together, is it out of romance or is it out of wanting to get out together? Is it a mutual mm. sort of? Carney yeah. walks this really clever line where he shows us romance, but he doesn't always necessarily do what he kind of subverts expectation. Yeah. Um, uh, particularly characters in his films have attraction to each other, but don't always act on it or mm. they act on it in a different, unique way. Yeah. And I've always really liked that because that's the case where you can have a romantic or an attraction to someone, but never quite capitalize on it because it's just not the right thing to do or it's not the right time. I think in the case of this film once, and I think in a minute we'll have our kind of general thoughts mm-hmm. on the film, but I think, I think you're right. This film really more than his other two films really nails that, Line because it hits that level of escapism in romanticism, but it's just out of reach, and it's something I think is incredibly relatable. Yeah, and uh, I can absolutely point at very specific moments in my life where it's like this is ripped from this, this is ripped from that in terms of this film, and that's why I cried at the end. 
This oh. shit got me hard, man. And um, we won't spoil so, it yet, so happy. but this movie, so man. Um, so, general thoughts, you've seen it a while ago. You love John Carney. Uh, What's your thoughts on Once? Uh, once is sort of a once-in-a-lifetime oh, my uh, ex- God. Uh, experience. No, it really is. <laughs> From its uh, sort of, um, that sort of, I think it's Eastern European sort of cinematic style where it's, mm. ver- it's, I think it's from a cinematic point of view, it's verifocal lenses, so he does a lot of uh, pulls and pushes and it almost feels kind of documentary I, style. That's the first thing I wrote. This feels like a documentary, the um, entire film. Yeah. Uh, what it is is it, it, it's always keeping characters in focus, but it's not cinematic focus. It's more uh, fly on the wall looking in. It's very observational. Uh, yes. Um, and that's more derivative of your sort of Swedish and Eastern European kind of style filmmaking. Um, it might also be an Irish filmmaking trope, but I haven't seen it. In- it reminded me of The Hunt. Which I think is a Swedish film. There we go. I so, think Damien lent me that, but it, it was very felt grounded well, in that way. I mean, it's actually funny enough. It's a, it's something we got pointed out for when we did our short film Cradle, because Cradle oh, okay. does a lot of um, either characters go out of focus when they come back into focus, yeah, and the or the focus just stays on a character. Mm. So uh, I think the shot that you shot down in the tunnel, yeah, where it move either uh, Tedra comes into focus. Or comes out of focus. I think focus. she backs up and then comes back in. Yeah. Um, and because we don't change the focus. We had a very... We had a 25mm lens. And it's all shot 25mm. Yeah. The entire film. So the focus is very, very, very mm. particular. So she will basically move her head Technically and come it's out of focus. Technically, it's 50 on... Like, because we've got a crop factor of 2 on the G7. Oh, so okay. it's a 50mm. Yep. But yeah. Yeah. If you're talking about full frame. But yes. Yeah. It's very tight. Yeah. And it's it keeps in yeah. that space. And... If particularly that sort of sequence, and then the sequence that Jack shot in the bedroom, both sort of fit in that style, yeah, um, quite well. But uh, yeah, this film definitely has that style too, and I really like it. And I, th- I just think it's it's an amazing film that has one of the most emotionally moving song sequences I've ever watched in a film. Like, I thought okay. Begin Again got me, like, good. Yeah. This film just, it has such, such an, it's insanely good. It's- I honestly, yeah, I think you're right. I love this movie so much because as I was watching it, I, the first, like, you know, first couple of scenes, it's so focused. It opens mm. so far because it's it's just him. It's just the guy. Mm-hmm. And that's literally how they're termed. They're termed as guy and girl in the credits, uh, which is, Fantastic. Yeah. I always make a joke that I'm always like, if they're going to call them guy and girl, and multiple movies do this mm-hmm. where they don't have names, it's like, you should just call them John and Jane after John. Um, yeah, Doe John Doe and Jane Doe. Jane. Yeah. It's like, just call them John and Jane. Why not? It would fit. They go, yeah. uh, maybe not because of their, they're not, you know, American, I guess. Well, but, I mean, John's Irish. Yeah, I suppose. Sure. But um, I would find it weird to have a Chet's uh, girl being like Jane. Yes. That would yeah. be a bit odd. But um, I always made a joke, but literally, it just focuses on this guy, mm-hmm. and it's, I mean, again, the documentary type of uh, shooting, so it's quite far. The only time they ever really come into a real tight focus is when they're deep in song. And yes. I, I kind of love that. Um, and then, obviously, it starts to slowly expand. While something like Begin Again, you're focusing on several different characters mm-hmm. that eventually intertwine, so it's a much bigger story. But I love that it was not the case in this film. Yeah, Begin Again, like, as much as I do love the movie, but it is uh, a lot cleaner is probably the wrong word, but it's the word that comes to my head the most. Um, 
It feels more like a film you would see and you would just go and find it. Yeah, film. it's a, it, it's still indie, but it's not like yeah, it, it has that clean cleanness that it's the most it. clean kind of structured indie. While this film feels way less structured, and Sing Street feels way more kind of interesting. Well, I know this. I know this film didn't have a crew of two or three people. Oh, it had very small crew. It, it, I mean, it was still pretty small, but it yeah. felt like I think this. The reason this film appeals to so many people is it's real. The script's really good, but it also doesn't feel like a lot of people worked on this film. It felt yeah. very much like Carney was given an amount of money. Uh, he wanted to make this film. It felt very in the school of Thunder Road. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, in the sense that it probably was shot on a very sh- small shooting schedule. It probably was only shot in probably two to three weeks. Um, yeah. Given if you really think about the settings, they're not... I, apart from which I'm sure we'll talk about in our highlight scenes, a, a shot at the end of the film. Um, there's oh, no yeah. big shots. It's very much ground level, eye level that's shots. That's true. There is one, you're right, there's one shot that stands out, but otherwise it generally just feels like a documentary. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a shot where I think it's, uh, I think her name's, uh, it's Margaret Inkalova, mm. um, girl in the film. Uh, she has an entire sequence where this, it's just her singing one of the songs, but it's just him Essentially, and I know it wouldn't have been it would have been on some form of gimbal, mm. but it's it literally is her walking, reading her lyrics oh, to the down music. The yeah, and I think and it's that's like a, a four minute shot or if, something. If you were here, I think it is, or wish you were here, or that, mm. I think that's the name of the song. Are you really here? Yeah, and uh, it's just that sequence, and it's just it feels like it's just him while she's just mouthing the words because obviously the song is done in post, so that might have, honestly, I wouldn't yeah. have been surprised maybe there was only one or two people that shot that entire sequence. I watched the, so because you lent me the Blu-ray, I, man, I love this movie so much, I immediately was like, I'm going to look at some of the stuff on the well, I haven't features. Even, I haven't done that, I should do that. There's a, I only watched like one of the featurettes in there, it was, it was something along the lines of making a modern day musical, uh, which was really interesting, and yeah, they go into that a lot, they go into, uh, one of the reasons actually they do this documentary style, like, you know, shoot from far away, is so the actors can be more comfortable because they very specifically hired people who were musicians first, actors second. So um, this was John Carney being like, if I put a camera in their face, if I gave them you know, last you know last looks for makeup, mm. that kind of if I put a slate in their face, it's like we're gonna do you know slate at the end of every shot. We're gonna put the camera far away. They'll feel like they're just being themselves. And even when it is a medium close up, the lens they're using is clearly uh, a telephoto lens of some kind, like yeah. a lens that's actually really far away and zooming in on them. You can tell because it's on a stabilizer, but it's still kind of a little bit shaky. And also if you look at the background, the background and the foreground are very close together. Yeah. So kind of a flatter image, way flatter image. And you can see, and that's that sort of style because the camera isn't right up in their face. I just went up to your face there, Jake. (laughs) Um, It's okay. I appreciate it. But so you can see that that's probably makes a lot of sense. They were probably using something like a 200 mil or yeah. So that's exactly what they're doing. And even the camera they were using, like, I couldn't tell you what camera it was, but it reminded me of like those, you know, free grand Sony kind of handy cams, like one of the bigger handy cams, but yeah. it was like, that looks like, like a Michael a, Moore-esque documentary. Yeah, sort one. of thing. Like It was shot like a documentary. It, was so it probably cool. honestly was, given when this time was made, it was there's a good chance it could have been the very first red model because I feel like that came around that time. That's it, very, I don't the, think it was a red at all. No? It looked more like a Sony camera. Okay. But um, it was it was interesting as well because, I mean, they had the, this small crew. They had the boom operator and stuff. They had, like, I think two producers all up. 
And I know John Carney really, he specified, I want a micro, I don't care what you say, I want a micro budget. I want everyone to be relaxed. There's no pressure on the budget. There's no pressure on the schedule. Just have a few people come out and make a film like this. Because he said, this is basically an ode to him when he was making music, pretty much just recording himself and the people around him doing music. So it's essentially what the movie is, is replicating that. This is, this is a, I think it's a really cool film because, you know, particularly in the last couple of weeks, I think uh, a lot of the people around us and ourselves, we're kind of, we're being, we're struggling with this fact that people uh, in our industry who are above us are telling us to go a certain way. And I feel like people like Carney are a great example of someone who wants to make a film and is going to make it no matter what. Yeah. And he makes it, he wants to make it his way in a, and it, I haven't watched these featurettes, but definitely even overall three films, uh, Sing Street's the first one that feels like uh, a studio starting to get in, like give him a little bit more, like, right. all right, this becomes a little bit more studio-esque. But this film does feel like an ode. It feels like a mission that this director yeah. wanted to go on and achieve. And same with Thunder Road. It, it feels like uh, Cummins wanted to make his film and he yeah. was going to do that no matter what. And he had a, a different way of going about it. He didn't go for funding anywhere. He, he sold parts of his company. Like, yeah. you know, shares in his company to make his film. And, and this definitely feels like he wanted to do it a certain way and keep everyone comfortable to get the most real yeah. performances, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think I think nowadays especially, and it's even more impressive here than, you know, Thunder Road, obviously very impressive, and they still had a lot of money. It, it As we go on in time, it gets easier to do that kind of thing. Yeah. This is 2007. So even at the time it would have been very tricky to do this kind of thing. Yeah. And I think they pulled it off very well. It's a short film. It's like 86 minutes mm-hmm. with credits. It's all, this is it's always a staple of John Carney films where there's only five minutes left in the film. Like, how are they going to wrap this up in five minutes? And then he does something. And they, yeah, and they, they to, to an extent, they do in each uh, one. And we could probably, like, I mean, in Sing Street, it's to the last, those the other two, Begin Again and, and Sing Street, both yeah. end with an Adam Levine number that pretty yeah. much tie everything <laughs> Don't together. Don't they could afford it. At the time of this release. No, because this would have been like when Maroon 5 was hot as shit. That would shit. just play out uh, one more night in would, the like, background. She will be loved nonstop. <laughs> like, you could not have afforded Adam Levine in this one. But, like, I mean, Lost Stars is a really good ending to a film. Mm. And Go Now uh, for Sing Street, is, yeah. that ending is like so, like, you're on the edge of your seat. And you're, like, so in the moment. The way that song and builds and yeah. crescendos is... And it's such the opposite kind of ending to the way this film ends. And if you don't mind, I'd love to talk about the yeah. ending now. So, spoilers. Watch this damn movie. Go out, get it, watch it's getting, it. It's getting really hard to say. I don't think we have... The last couple of weeks, we just haven't had a film that we're like, don't watch it. Just you. We keep getting, <laughs> keep getting watch it films. We've had a couple... I mean, we had blind spotting last week. Oh. Like, what else? Oh, I'm going to have to throw down the gauntlet for you at the end of this episode. You're going to have to pit blind spotting against once. Oh, no. <laughs> I think... Ooh, that's a tough one. Yeah, I, I think... I think at the end of the day, I think Blind Spotting's probably a better film, but look, once has it hits a special place in my heart in a way that Blind Spotting doesn't, mm. because again they kind of nail this thing of this very specific story, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, this is a story about two people who, regardless of you know the, the typical love story that we will see on film. Regardless of any of that, there's a story about one person coming into another person's life 
and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Two people coming into each other's lives for a very brief amount of time and impacting each other in that way and then then disappearing. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to that, like, the tagline is, you know, how, like, they ask what the right person is. but yeah. And this, they, they say, you know, love's really, true love's only once. Yeah. And you could make the argument that Carney, what he's trying to say, although ignoring that, that tagline, I, I always feel these movies are more about it's the love, the, the one love in people's lives is music. Mm. And everything is an extension or a reflection of what music does to people and brings people together or tears them apart. And, yeah. And I think that's the consistent theme over all three films. Well, it's the communication for music. Yeah. And I thought it was a nice touch in this film in particular because obviously you have an Irish guy and a Czech uh, woman. Mm -hmm. And even though she has a bit of broken English and even though there's never like a scene where they're like, oh, sorry, what did you say? Mm -hmm. They completely understand each other, but I thought it was a nice touch when you add the music on top of it, and that's how they really communicate with each other yeah. through that music. Because then that's when everyone, they just speak clearly and they just become like that part. And yeah. I mean, you want to talk about the ending, which I think the ending is a really good uh, like sort of symbiosis to uh, that sort of construct. What yeah. happens where Guy... Um, guy and girl. <laughs> it's, it's Glenn has Hansard. Yeah. Uh, um, so I'm sorry, I'm probably butchering your surname. Um I'm sure he forgives us. I'm sure he forgives us. We're talking about his film that's 10 years old. Um, uh, uh, 12 years old. Wow. We are old. Um, he gives the piano. Yeah. To her. Uh, or he Ooh. buys the piano from an earlier scene, which we are definitely going to talk about. Yeah. Um, and that's the one shot in this entire thing that's not at eye level, I think. And it's a... It's, it's a crane a, shot. It's a crane jib shot where it goes out the window... And down the street, if I recall. Well, actually, no, now you point, there's two. Because the, there's one where she walks out of the apartment and finds the piano. That's yes. a crane shot as well that comes down. Yeah, so yeah. So there's actually two crane shots. And they're right at the end. Yeah. Then it goes back to the, you only get two money shots and you use them both in the last. <laughs> <laughs> um, in you the use them both at the end. And it's a really good ending. Because yeah. what that does is that sums up the connection these two had, the journey they've been on. And what's the thing that has enabled this journey? Uh, music, the piano. And I think that, it, like you said, Carney has this amazing ability of being like, fuck, how are you wrapping up this film in five minutes? He goes, watch what I can do. And he just does it. <laughs> and you're just like, you're sitting there, you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely true. Because I, I, I thought the exact same thing about um, Begin Again. And it's been a few months, or nearly a year now since I've seen it. So I need to. I, I really do want to rewatch that, especially after seeing this. Well, it's on Netflix too now. It's on Netflix now, so absolutely go out and watch it. I mean, I mean, I think once, honestly, I very quickly came accustomed to the idea that Once is probably the best of those three films. Yeah, I'd say and so. And probably has the most consistently good soundtrack from cover to cover. Yeah, in my this, opinion. Yeah. I think this has definitely has my favorite song of the three. I I like Begin Again. I think that's because it's the it's the first of the three I watched. I like it for some reason because it, I think it's because of simply Ruffalo's performance is very like it's very hard to look past because it's so it's so good. I mean, it's Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. It's pretty hard, yeah. <laughs> even when can't screw him up. <laughs> yeah, and I think taking someone uh, Levine was definitely more uh, obviously less camera shy yeah. than these probably these two were, um, and. 
it's tough. I'd have to really like delve into it. I mean, all three of them are like, it's like comparing like the, the we've talked about this. It's like these films are like, a trilogy almost. It's like, yeah, it's like you're comparing an, an A plus to an A and maybe an A minus. Yeah, it's yeah. like, they're the three. I honestly reckon the one that I thought that would be, I'd say Sing Street would probably be third, but that's like a, still a high third, you know, it's, yeah, it's like comparing yeah, the yeah. Toy Story movies. Come on. Well, <laughs> the first three. Yeah. <laughs> Pharaoh. Oh, um, uh, yeah. Fourth one's okay. <laughs> but no, this, this one definitely has, has some amazing like soundtrack moments where you're just, yeah. you're in awe. And I think the ending's really strong, but. I mean, are they in love? Do they? They never really finish that relationship, do they? Well, I mean, that's part of the bittersweetness of like, like I said, sometimes someone comes into your life and they leave something with you, in this case, physically a piano and emotionally, I guess this, I guess you're right, this love Mm -hmm. uh, for both music and for this other person. Yeah. Regardless of what kind of love that is. And um, it it is bittersweet because they both kind of, in a way, they both kind of get what they want at the start of the film. Yeah. But obviously, their goals might have changed by that She point. wants to take care of her daughter and have a steady foundation for her a to grow up. father for her daughter, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and she gets that, and she also gets the, the financial sort of benefits from yeah. producing that album, and he gets to get out and try and live the dream. Yeah. But he, lo- he essentially loses out on something that he couldn't... E- but he accepts it he can't have because yeah. it's... And it's so it's so true because it's such yeah. a thing that we face as humans in relationships all the time. There's there's someone out there for us that maybe more... Where we get along with more and it's more right for us, but because given our current su- circumstances, we can't pursue it. Mm. And that's the rock and the hard place, but that's the truth and it's... It, and yeah, it's we. It's it's strange to have two characters get what they want, but they don't get what they want, and that's yeah. what Carney does really well. I think it's clever. Yeah, because really clever. Essentially, that's what all three of these films touch on. They, they touch on that. They achieve their verbal goal, but they don't achieve their like the goal that they never thought existed at the start yeah. of the film. So. Well, it's the wants and the needs, and yeah, how that kind of evolves and changes as characters throughout. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting because another thing that John Carney was talking about is how they pretty much they wrote a sixty-page script, and most of the musical notes were bullet points, and that's kind of how they took the story. And I remember him saying very specifically, he didn't want to spend two years working on the script; he just wanted to pump it out. He didn't even care if it was that good, but he mm-hmm. wanted to make this story and this kind of film, which I thought was really interesting because it. The script's really good. And it's, it is really good. Um, I think it comes back to, and it was probably that case of comes, he didn't want a big budget for this film. He was going to make this film no matter what. And he probably didn't want to spend too much time on the script because he didn't want too many people to judge the film on paper. Yeah, and this, absolutely. This, this comes back to a big thing where uh, I think this, this film came around to both of us at mm. the right time because it can be really frustrating sometimes when you create an idea and, and people can hold you back for that idea and when you just want to go and make it and people around you want to go and make it because obviously John and probably his close associates were like, yeah, this film seems attainable. Let's make this film. Yeah. Um, uh, probably people that he worked with for a long period of time and he kind of just out on, a, out on trust they worked together, went and made this film. and Yeah. 
It's it got a lot of acclaim, didn't it? It got a lot of buzz. Well, what it won best original song at the Oscars. Yeah, it says it on the cover, right? So, think, uh, think <laughs> about it was really interesting. Yeah, so it's like, and the thing is, if this, if this script, if that sixty-page script was put on a Hollywood desk, it'd probably get thrown straight in the trash. Yeah, sixty pages for a feature film. Fuck off. See you later. <laughs> Like it's true, it's true. These you are those an accent through that phase. Yeah, I just think it's true. It, it's that oh, it's not a two-hour ballad where there's this big powerful number and there's a Queen song in the middle of it. I don't know. It just like it, it comes back to let's look at what won best song at the Oscars, yeah. you know, in the last couple of years or like you know things like the the success that Bohemian Rhapsody had, which mm. is technically a modern day musical. Yeah. Um, earlier in, in this show, we talked about Rocket Man when it came out. Um, these shows that take pre-existing songs and build a story around them rather than this one having a story and building the songs around the story. Yeah. Completely different. They're completely different things. And I think... It works in this case. I think it works in most cases. Mm. All the Carney ones all have original songs. Yeah. Every one of them. Songs are written specifically for the film. And it goes to show that extra time and effort to create songs, it takes it to another level when it's done correctly. And it, it's better than pre-existing songs that are just put in there sometimes. Literally so people like can just gravitate to the movie more because they're hearing a song that they like in a movie, a.k.a. <clears throat> Suicide Squad. <laughs> <laughs> or when they do it okay, like in Guardians. Yeah. Kind of okay. But again, that kind of serves... The story and it kind of makes sense within the the realm of that. Yeah, but Guardians comes. I feel like even Guardians walks that line where they're just like, "Hey, remember this song from the seventies or the eighties? Yeah. Like when they play like I admittedly when they play Father and Son at the end of Guardians two, I'm like, really? That's the laziest choice for a father and song. <laughs> it's called Father and Son. Like, come on. I know. Um, I can't even remember what song they use, but I know in Captain Marvel they did a similar thing. Like some random. I am 90s. a woman. Oh, or something like it was. I'm... Yeah, it was. That's right. It was like a yeah female empowerment song during like, like one of the most boringly choreographed fight scenes. Yeah, I've ever seen. I'm like, okay. Whereas the songs in all three of these films, and I'm we're gonna talk about it now because I want to talk about it, Jake. Let's talk about falling slowly. Yes. Um, it might be my favorite song across all three. So the as you brought up, it won uh, an Oscar this film for best original song. I think once was the best. Once was the best song. Yeah, apparently. Really? I think it's on there. Check it. Is it was it once? It had I wouldn't know. Unless it's like that's the movie. Wait, I swear it it's on it's on here somewhere. Maybe I'm wrong. I swear oh wait, no. Uh, yeah. Unless that just means that's the, the movie. Thing. I have a feeling it's falling slowly. I'm gonna find gonna this out. We're gonna this. fact check but it. But let's talk about falling slowly. So this kind Absolutely. of breaks into highlight scenes. Um so about 25 to 30 minutes, it might be even earlier than that, maybe 20 minutes into the film. Uh, it's pretty early. Yeah. The characters meet each other. It is falling slowly. Yeah, of course it was. Uh, it's the best best song in a movie. Uh, <laughs> so I listened to this song. Uh, this movie first came to me through a lot of uh, these films. Uh, the boys at Film Spotting. Very uh, nice. The Film Spotting podcast. Little shout out there. Yeah. Um, shout out to the boys in Chicago. Um Basically, we're talking about their favourite Carney scenes. And they were talking about Sing Street because that was the movie they were reviewing on that that episode. And they brought up uh, this scene in 
a musical store between two people that never met each other and they mm. sung this song called Falling Slowly. And then they played the song and I was like, oh, my God, that's a gorgeous song. And then it was on uh, Spotify and I heard it. And I, you know what, you want to talk, I've never like immediately had an emotional response that heavy to right. a song. I was like, I was, I think I remember sending it to you. I was editing The Pretender. Oh, okay. Which is um, oh, yeah, this and right. just yeah. finished uh, my day at editing. It was like twelve thirty or one, and you're always up that late. So <laughs> never not. I'm walking home, and there's no one out there uh, in Cardinia. It's just dead, uh, dead at night. And I play this song, and I'm just like looking out, and it's just no one out there. And I was just like, I just was like, I need to just. This is just next level. I listened to it for like four or five times on loop, and then yeah. I sent it to you, and I was like, "Listen to this song." I listened to it on the drive here after oh, watching the movie. It's it's amazing. It's an amazing song. I, I want to buy the soundtrack just to you know what? have it. It's a good allude to a Star Is Born. Yeah, it's like a really interesting take on a Star Is Born. Basically, holy shit. Yeah, kind of is. <laughs> I'm probably not the first person but to figure that out. About about um, <laughs> twenty minutes in, the characters meet each other and. And girl, uh, it, she just comes and practices piano uh, at this music store. And why don't they have names? I don't know. They never need like, them. Yeah, but like I don't know. We can call them by their actor names if that helps. I don't mind. It's just I'm kind of curious behind the decision. I kind of like it because it, it, what it is is it, it once again it comes back to they're ignoring. Their attraction is solely based on the music they play and the people they are. I suppose, yeah. And it's got nothing to do with their name. And something, something, you know, names are associated with character. That's a good point. You know, when you think of a douchebag character, they've normally got a pretty... Chad. Yeah. It's Trent. A... Exactly. No, you know? I know some nice Trents out there. Yeah, but they're not on... We're talking I know, yeah. Cinematic it's language. Story, uh, um, stereotypes. <laughs> but anyway, they're playing in this music store and, and Guy whips out a couple of his songs and they just start playing this song and yeah. it is it's breathtaking it's, it's so good because it, it starts off just like they're just like he just says the the beats and the rhythm to it and she starts playing he starts singing and then they both join in and with without even acknowledging each other they're singing it well it's awesome because like you can kind of notice her audibly keep looking back at him for like cues mm. of like oh is he gonna sing it again in this but yep okay cool i'm gonna sing too like you can kind of mm. see that in their faces which is awesome because if it's anything to go by john carney saying they're not really actors that's some good acting right there while performing mm-hmm. the music and it's it's really it's pretty amazing because it's like they they look to each other and what you're watching is you're literally watching you know, it's funny you bring up A Star Is Born, but it's like that birth of that song really taking yeah. flight. And they do a very good sequence in Begin Again where Ruffalo's in the bar and he sees all the instruments playing. All the arrangements, like, appear in front of him. That's uh, a dope scene. That's that's one of my favourite sequences in a Carney film. Um, and I really like the song that she plays in that. But this one is far more real. It yeah. comes back to that fly-in-the-wall documentary observational style. Yeah. Where it's just like, oh my god, this is just magical, and it's, and the song has so much to do with the characters. They're both kind of in hard hardship. They both kind of need each other, but they don't know it yet. Yeah. Because what happens in this scene? They have a connection. They they move on, and then you know about ten minutes later, she goes over to his house, and he thinks, oh well, let's sleep together, and, and she he goes stuffs it up. He stuffs it up bad, and she gets really annoyed, but. You know, they they rebuild and they restart and they keep going because he 
wanted it easy and and that's not the kind of she wanted him for the music at first and he didn't. I mean she's kind of have she has this like innocent soul to her yeah like especially when she thanks the father who just repaired the vacuum cleaner that's a whole great friend mm. on its own is like the vacuum cleaner clean uh, the repairman and the girl who needs her vacuum clean fixed yeah. like I just love that but um, even when, like when she thanks the father mm-hmm. and like shakes his hand and stuff, and he's like taken aback at how polite she is, just that kind of thing. Yeah. It's like it tells you immediately what kind of character she is. Yeah, and it's it's pretty, even just like her like bringing her vacuum cleaner to where he's busking. Yeah, she's just dragging it along <laughs> in the street. Um, and it's it, it's honestly it has this perfect mixture of innocence but like real heartfelt beauty yeah. to it. And that scene, and you hear that song, and you just like. Oh, I can't even, but I reckon that's the other song I really like. And it comes even earlier in the film is, um, say it to me now, which you'll know it when Mm. it's the one where he's busking. It's the, it's the first introduction between Uh, the guy and the girl and he's playing it. I think that's the song that he actually wrote himself that John Carney asked to do for the film. It's amazing. Cause what it does is it paints up. He's clearly in a breakup state. He's getting over the girl that left him. Yeah. He's screaming for something to happen in his life because he cannot physically do this shit anymore. Yeah. He need, and he's at the point where there's no one around. So he's just playing for himself and he's playing to get stuff out of his system. It's his, like, therapy. Yeah. And just that idea... Um, like when it like pushes in, the camera goes like when he hits the the chorus, and the camera just starts moving in fast. Yeah, like, yeah. In that weird sort of like it almost. And is... it's the first time we get a close up in the film. Yeah, and it's just, and then it pulls out at the end of the song, and she's like watching. Yeah. And then that's the in- first introduction, and it's just fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I love I love the focus, especially because it actually starts off with him almost getting robbed. And yeah. that's a that's a hilarious scene because like first off I can't understand a word he's saying which is hilarious, <laughs> and then he helps pick up the coins after he's yeah. gotten busted like oh that's all great as well. It's so good, cool. It's, but um yeah that's pretty. This show this is a must watch. This is one of my favorite films. Is there any uh, highlight scenes you want to talk about in particular? Um, the falling slowly one. Um, just that performance that was pretty good the the band montage was pretty cool like when the band try and get all together and they're in the studio uh, and I, I love that whole sequence from the studio to the, the car the car test and yeah mm. the beach like, I love I love that concept because like that's such a film thing mm. it was like alright we've seen it we've edited it for how many months mm-hmm. let's play it on a shitty TV with shitty speakers it's true like it's true. that's how it, I've I, when I was working on a music video I remember as I was getting roughs of the song I would specifically go into my car and play mm-hmm. the song on the car just to get that authentic experience. I think those are definitely like a, like you said, it's not a super long film, but it doesn't need to be. It doesn't notice yeah. none of all three of these films do the best thing ever. They don't overstay their welcome. Absolutely, they they are in there to say something. They say it well, and then they they get out and they want you. They leave you wanting more, which is exactly what you want from these I... films. Appreciate it. I have a couple of highlight scenes, and I, want, I wanted to pick some stuff that was specifically not music, because mm-hmm. uh, there are obviously a lot of scenes peppered in between with mm-hmm. dialogue and some nice character moments. And yes, a couple. Of, I really appreciated when they finished their demo. The, I don't know if it was an EP or an album. I I'm, I imagine it was an EP. I think it was they, an EP. They keep mentioning like a few songs, so it might have been an EP. Whatever the demo disc they've created, 
when uh, Guy presents it to his father, mm-hmm. I love that even though it makes... It's like, of course he's going to love it. Of course mm-hmm. he's going to be like, follow your dreams. I love this thing. But there's still that silence when he doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, what is he going to... Oh, like, that's a great moment. But I, I love the fallout of that scene. He goes, go pursue it. But even then the sun's kind of like, yeah, but I don't want to leave you here by yourself, you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. It's that real, like... It's funny. It's it's got like a weird. It's there's this. There are these weird uh, ties in with sort of like the following dreams, but the the family way up and the things that hold us back in life. But yeah, they hold us back for the right reason, I guess. But yeah, it's a really good scene. It's like they're accompanying. I mean, it's a parenthood thing mm-hmm. as well of like trying to protect your kids, but also wanting them to do what they need. I think my my actual like favorite scene, highlight scene that's not in music or not a song or anything like that mm-hmm. has to be um, when guy and girl sneak out to the piano in the studio and the conversation they have, uh, which alludes to the whole thread of this film mm-hmm. when he says like, come to London with me. Mm-hmm. And she kind of obtains the idea for a little bit and you can't really tell if she's like, cause they buy into it. They start talking to each other about their plans and mm-hmm. you know, they're going to move in together and they're going to bring the daughter and they're going to, you know, make lots of albums and record deals and all this kind of stuff. They yeah. start talking inside, but you know, deep down, it's like she hasn't agreed to this though. Yeah, they're just talking, and but, again, it's such a real moment. It's sort of like um, they and he does this so well, particularly in Begin Again and Once. Um, there is that weird sort of tension that occurs between Ruffalo and Knightley mm. in Begin Again. Um, you know, um, and it's it's strange given how that, like, Ruffalo does get back together with his wife at the end of that film. But there is this part in it where, with the splitter, the orc splitter. Yeah, and, I love that. And the headphone splitter, sorry. And they both go around the city together. And what it comes to is they aren't doing it out of what we discover in the hindsight is it's not out of romance, it's more out of self-healing. Yeah. And, and both needing each other to sort of rebuild for whatever they needed each other for whether that would be, um, you know, a sexual based thing, but it's not, it's a, it's just a relationship sort of, yeah. of, of similar minds and, and hearts basically, which is that amazing line that I don't know how he manages to get it right so many times and just understand it. It's just really good dialogue writing and yeah. character establishment. Because I mean, you feel that right in the beginning again, farewell when like the, they've, they've finished the album. Yeah. And they both kind of look at each other like, now what? Like, what? It's, are... it's a clever thing because, like, I think I think this film dabbles in a little a little stronger, but in something like Begin Again, that could easily be, they could swap those genders around. Or yeah. they could both be dudes or they could both be girls. You know, I think, I think that's kind of the secret key to it is they play with our expectations based on, oh, look, guy and girl go through journey together. Mm-hmm. They're both attractive. They both kind of have these specific moments in there. So they play with their They have enough in common. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that, and you kind of expect that and you almost start to immediately ship them and you want this to happen. But I think I think Carney knows this and plays with that. Yeah. So. And it's that's yeah. more true to humans. I mean, how many times have we met people in our life that we feel like we're on the same sort of creative frequency as them and we naturally, even in our own heads, think, oh, well, that means that we must like each other for that, like, more than what just, you know, that creative freedom and just enjoying each other. And it's 
especially in artistic sort of industries, whether it be music, film, uh, or acting or anything, the, the line often does get blurred, and maybe that's why so many crazy things happen in our industry. But it's <laughs> I think uh, music in particular, because music has this much more quick emotional side to it. Yeah, I think film you could definitely get into a more kind of systematic, less sexy part of film. Music, I, I think, is may, always sexy. I mean, yeah, I, I actually think I could disagree with it because there's nothing better than when you're, like, throwing ideas in film at someone else in that sense and you're just kind of like, wow, we're just we're vibing this, we're making this thing happen together and it's just yeah. sort of... Bo- I mean, even just, like, if we go back to things like, like the buzz you feel... It doesn't even have to be, like... It doesn't have to be a sexual thing. It's just that buzz you feel with another person if you complete a project with them. Yeah. I mean, like... Me and you sat down for six weeks and made a short film, you know. Mm. By the end of that, we were, I mean, we were hanging out a lot. We spent... Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the part the, of the It's the buzz, process. you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's that feeling you get when you create stuff and at the end of it, you're like, now what? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think my main point with music is, and it's so visually explored in this film where they just they just play. Yeah. With a film, we have to organise the hell yeah. out of that idea. With music, and this happens in the film, they literally just say... Okay, let's play together. They jam. And they make something beautiful on the spot. Yeah. I mean, that's why music has that key that film can't nail as well. Oh, yeah. It can definitely, it definitely has like immediate chemistry. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas film, I feel like is a bit more slow and methodical with building that sort of relationship because you could like each other one day and then hate each other the next. <laughs> and the film's only been 2% done at this point. <laughs> so. Ah, uh, well, there that's John Carney's Once. Absolutely. Go check this out. Uh, available on Blu-ray uh, and DVD, I suppose. Or just wherever you can find Get it. Get on Blu-ray. Yeah. Do it. Again, I watched this on my PlayStation because that's the best way to watch Blu-rays in my house. Crisp. It looks crisp and beautiful. Lovely. The only thing is I have to have my headphones in, plugged into the controller. So I have to like, not knock my controller over when I'm doing oh, it. okay. It's, uh, it's confusing. Fair enough. Oh, well. Well, uh, what's going on in cinemas this week, Jake? Oh, we've got a couple of things coming out in the next week. So we've got Apollo 11. Mm, is that, hey, I'm assuming a documentary. Ah, uh, you know what? You're probably right. I've only got the poster here. Uh, Todd Douglas Miller's critically lauded look back at the Apollo 11 moon landing yes. mission led by Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. So there you go. Uh, speaking of that, there's also another movie sitting right next to here called Armstrong, which looks... Very, very similar. It looks like the first man poster. It does. Uh, Harrison Ford narrates this documentary on Neil Armstrong's life story from his childhood in Ohio <laughs> to his trip to the moon and beyond. What the fuck? These are right next to They come out on the 18th. They both do. That's crazy. That's amazing. Anyway, we also got The White Crow, which I don't really know what that is. Uh, Direct co-stars, biopic drama about Russian ba- uh, ba- ballet. Dan- I see... I see Ballet. ballet spelt and it froze me off because it's ballot where's the t yeah, i guess it's, it's, ballot. French. it's french i guess you're right yeah um yeah i don't really have any interest in that personally but yeah so something else comes out next week zeke and yeah. i think we're very curious to watch it mm. what is that film well this will be our movie next week we are watching john favreau's the lion king oh Simba, you must remember who you are. Simba idolizes his father, King Mufasa, and takes to heart his own royal destiny 
on the plains of Africa. But not everyone in the kingdom celebrates the new cub's arrival. Scar, Mufasa's brother and former heir to the throne, has plans of his own. The battle for Pride Rock is soon ravaged with betrayal, tragedy, and drama, ultimately resulting in Simba's exile. Now with help from a curious pair of newfound friends, Simba must figure out how to grow up and take back what is rightfully his. Mm, this sounds familiar. Ah, this almost sounds like this came out, what, like 20 years ago? <laughs> Why? Why is that the 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 official synopsis? That's like so... we know what the Lion King is. I know it's just like guys, just it should be like see previous synopsis. For this <laughs> film. Uh, Please read Lion King nineteen ninety. Was it four? Yeah, I want to say four. It sounds like four. The Let's go with world. four. You know, no, in all seriousness, <laughs> first off, I did not know Scar was um his brother. Yeah, my father's brother. Never knew that. What did you even watch the movie? I mean, yeah, I watched that movie maybe like fifteen years ago. Oh man! I just He's thought Uncle he was Scar, man. It's... Oh yeah! Now I there think about go. it. Yeah, yeah. Was... Kills his brother, dude. That's dog. Oh, you just spoiled the movie. <laughs> that's about. It's not even out yet, Zeke. Like how can how... you spoil it for this, people? This is equivalent to <laughs> all the two movies we watched before Captain Marvel. It was the other side of the wind and Dog Two. So it's like indie art film, indie art film. Commercial trash, and then we just <laughs> oh, that's did, a good point. We yeah. just did, we just did blind spotting once, and now like commercial trash question mark. <laughs> well, we t- it's funny because we sat down before we started recording this show, and we talked about some of the ideas for the next few episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I we landed on Lion King because obviously it comes out in the next week, but yeah. I, I think it's an important one to do because obviously it's going to be such an interesting comparison to the animation. Mm-hmm. I even said earlier, was it while we were recording? I don't even remember that I've seen barely any of these reincarnated Disney films. I've seen Cinderella. No, it, was, it was before we were, yeah, before okay, we were yeah. recording. I've oh. seen Cinderella, and I think that's it. I have seen uh, up Jungle until Book? I saw The Jungle Book. I saw Beauty and the Beast. Yep. What else has there been? That's it, right? Uh, Dumbo oh, came uh, out this uh, Dumbo year. and Aladdin. I haven't seen oh, and those. Aladdin, yeah. Well, there you go. I haven't seen uh, any of those. So I haven't seen yeah. any of the new ones. I kind of... Beauty and the Beast was fine. I mean, the th- it comes back to Beauty and the Beast was based off one that was made in the 90s, and this was also made in the 90s. So the animation has now... Re- it, it reaches a point of timelessness. Now, admittedly, the Jungle Book uh, was made in, the, I think, the 60s. So the animation is not as crisp, and admittedly, look, it's people say it's timeless. Look, it looks a bit old. It looks old, you know. Whereas I, I feel mean, like the animation itself is like untouchable. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, I think things like when we got to the level of Beauty and the Beast, which I'm pretty sure was like like heavily acclaimed for some of the 3D motion stuff it was mm. doing. Were they doing um, like the multi panel tracking sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plane thing, I guess I should say. This one too, they they are timeless. Like you can go back and watch these and not even be remotely all three of them, Aladdin, uh those ones that came out in the nineties, they were at a point of such crisp efficiency. Oh they're doing Mulan as well. I forgot about that. I was actually saying to Jack the other day, I, I would be keen for a Mulan if it was like hella serious Mulan. Like like no singing, like real dark, brooding Mulan. I'm pretty sure they're getting rid of a lot of the songs. No, no, and they're they getting rid of that dragon as well. Yeah, they should. I like that. Know? I would like the sound of that, to be honest. I don't want to do one. I, okay, interesting. Because what that is there is now they're taking an original approach to the Disney concept. If Fair they enough. are getting rid of Fair things enough. like... Like, this film looks like just a... Sh- a, it's a it looks like a shot, sh- shot for shot remake. Yeah. 
Whereas, Minus the emotions on their faces. <laughs> whereas at least things like the Jungle Book, um, they tried uh, a couple of different things with some of the characters. Was from that the also Favreau? Yes. Uh, yes, yeah. it was. I know Andy Serkis has done stuff. Yeah. Um, the big, the good thing about Jungle Book is they, they did actually tackle a couple of uh, different approaches with characters. So King Louie, uh, who was voiced by, I think, Christopher Walken, um, his character went from being kind of this fun, goofy-looking guy mm. to really kind of this serious, kind of sadistic, more like okay. darker thing, which it played off. That's interesting. I think pretty well. Um, so if Mulan, if they really go for like, this is just the story of a soldier who masquerades mm. as a father, that could be really cool. Um, I'm curious. I didn't mind the trailer. I don't remember anything about the Mulan animation, though, to be honest. I loved it. It was, like, my favourite one. i got to rewatch it because I don't remember anything so about it. It's back when Eddie Murphy was funny. <laughs> what has he done recently? He did that weird movie in 2008. Meet, meet Dave. Meet Dave, that's it. What's he done since then? I have no clue. That can be our homework <laughs> for this week. Anyway, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with John Favreau's The Lion King. 2019.